Amen. Thank you, Paxton and Angie and team. Anthony, thanks for joining us today. Uh, how's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. Hey, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue in our series, Sojourners and Exiles, seeing how 1 Peter, and this book that Peter has written to these saints uh, in present-day Turkey, is, is where it would be, Asia Minor, and how that relates to you and me and our world now. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today, specifically in verses 12 to 19. Typically in this moment, we have an opportunity for corporate prayer together. Today, we're going to place that at the end of our service. Um, and so we'll start with 1 Peter 4 uh, today. I'd love to start and, and kind of really talk about this passage in light of um, a story that kind of connects with me, really relative to, I think, what Peter is describing here. Um, I'm somebody that kind of jumps easy, like I scare really easy. Are any of you those people? Like, I just, I just get, uh, and not just terrified and horror, but like just surprised. I just get spooked really easy. Um, things that are suspenseful really kind of get me and grab me. Um, our daughter Clover has done this thing where she's discovered that she can, she can get me. She's figured out that if she'll stand in certain nooks and crannies and places in our home, she can jump out and boo or scare me, and I literally will jump. Have you guys seen this thing? Uh, there's this video recently that's been out and then kind of making its way around the internet. There's this pastor, this minister that's at a church and it's during the invitation time and he's standing at the front of the church and he's just kind of praying. And then there's a congregant that walks up and she walks up and he just freaks out, right? Uh, that's kind of that's how I am. He didn't expect it. Uh, in the same way, Clover is this big and she's this loud uh, and so I, I, you would think I would not be surprised by this person, and yet I am. But not the more she's done it. The more she's done it, over and over and over again, I'm less surprised. I get the sense that it's coming. And not just because I know like the place that she stands when she typically seeks to, to scare me or surprise me, but because it's happened so frequently that it's kind of like crying wolf. In a sense, I'm just not shocked by it anymore. In this passage today, specifically in verse 12, we're going to look and see that Peter's writing to these sojourners, these exiles, and he's giving them this really important instruction. He's saying, do not be surprised when you suffer. When you suffer as a Christian, do not be surprised. And that's really in so many ways has comprised the theme and the things that Peter is writing about. He's writing to these people who are being pushed to the edge of society, these Christians that are not a part of the Roman culture of this world and are facing persecution. Not martyrdom yet, not death. But emotional persecution, social persecution, becoming outcast in the world in which they live. And Peter instructs these believers, he says, look, it's not just that this has happened time and time again, and so you're conditioned to not being surprised, but don't be surprised for the reason that you suffer. This morning, we're going to get a picture of what it looks like to suffer well in Christ. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. It says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. 
four things that we can see in this text today. Four things that really jump out at us that Peter's seeking to communicate to these believers, these sojourners, these exiles, these people who, who live for another world just like you and I. Four things that this text teaches us about how we suffer and ultimately what suffering entails. And it's different than we think. The first is this. We are to suffer without surprise. We're called to endure suffering not as those who are taken aback or shocked by it. We're called to suffer without surprise. Second, suffering is sharing in Christ. Suffering is sharing in Christ and experiencing the same life that Jesus did. Third, suffering is blessing. And you're thinking, yeah, let's get to that one because I don't think that one's right. Suffering is, in fact, however, blessing. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what we're going to see today. And fourth and finally, we are to suffer. This is how we suffer. We suffer in view of God's sovereignty. Remember last week we talked about living in light of the end? Peter's going to drive this home at the end of this passage today that we're called to suffer in view of God's sovereignty. So number one, this passage describes suffering without surprise. Peter states very plainly, very clearly, he says, beloved, in some texts he'll say, dear friends. He's telling those he loves that he's using this language that's very familial and has a lot of friendship connotations with it to say this to people that he cares about. He says, don't be surprised when you suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but I think most of us, As Christians are kind of shocked when bad things happen. Not just, not just that we're optimistic, right? It's not just that we're, we're not pessimist or that we're not the kind of people that are waiting for the other shoe to drop, but that we're the kind of people that say, like, Lord, I'm loving you. I'm serving you. I'm walking with you. I'm caring about my neighbor. So why in the world am I suffering? Why is that happening? Peter says, don't be surprised. This is not something that should surprise you. Instead, you should expect it. Why? He uses this language, fiery trial. There's this fiery trial that we undergo, that we endure. What he's talking about is really the same language he's using, reverting back to chapter 1. If you've got 1 Peter open before you, look back to chapter 1 and look at verses 6 and 7 specifically. Verse 5, G, uh, Peter has talked about Jesus as truly as the way we just sang of him, our living hope, that we've been born again to a living hope, and that we're the kind of people that are actually going to be, because we're so dearly loved, refined and purified. We're going to be people who endure suffering, not because God's desire is that we should suffer for no reason, for no sake, for no end, but instead that we might be refined, that we might be purified, that we might come to a deeper understanding actually of who God is and his love for us. The same language there. Peter's saying this fiery trial has a deep purpose. There's something really important that's happening. Jesus knew this all too well. This is John chapter 16. Verse 33, John 16, verse 33, it says this, he's speaking with his disciples and he's at this point uh, really on the way to the cross and this is in, in many ways some of the last words he'll speak to them in John 16, 33, he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The end of his earthly ministry and life, Jesus in so many ways has told the disciples what's coming. Remember this? Remember walking through these gospel stories together and seeing truly that Jesus is explaining that he's saying that the Son of Man must be crucified, that he's going to be handed over, that he's going to be delivered over, but he'll be raised again on the third day, and the disciples either disavow it, like Peter, 
They say, this can't be the way it is. Or they're dismissive, or they just don't understand it. In this moment, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's saying plainly and clearly that I've said these things to you. There's this level of suffering that you are going to experience. You might say, well, what are these things? What are these things Jesus said? Look back up. If you've got your Bible before you, John chapter 16, and verses 2 and 3, it says this. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying this to them, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. He's talking about the persecution that is coming upon believers. And when you hear those things, you hear two very specific things that the people Peter's writing to, these brothers and sisters in Asia Minor, all these churches, they're experiencing the same thing, some now and some are to come. When Jesus says they'll put you out of the synagogue, he's describing the same kind of pain that these brothers and sisters are experiencing. What is it? It's, it's hurt. It's not physical pain, but it's emotional pain. They're hurt. They're being ostracized. They're being told that they don't fit within the world. That's what they're being told. Whether it be a, a secular world, a religious world, look, the Gentiles don't like them. The Jews don't like them. They're out altogether. There's no friends to be had. But it's not just the hurt that they experience. They also are going to experience harm. And Peter knows this. He even Jesus states, and Peter heard this very plainly, very clearly, that they're going to kill you and they're going to think they're doing it for good. They're going to think that they're doing it for good. There's a lot of things that can surprise us. A ton of things that can surprise us. We're like 30 seconds into this morning up front, and Mia says to me, it's like kind of hot in here. And that's like the most surprising thing that I ever thought, like I never thought I would hear her say that in her whole life. We walk in this room every Sunday, we're like freezing to death. There's tons of things that are going to surprise you in life. But suffering as a Christian should not be one of them. But we can suffer with hope because we know there is purpose. God is refining us. We see the deeper purpose here in this, that suffering, number two, is sharing in Christ. So Peter says, don't be surprised. It's not strange. The thing that's happening to you shouldn't be viewed as strange. This is purification. The God is refining us. It's not It's not pain. It's not punishment. It's instead purity that's coming through this. He says, but rejoice in so far, in verse 13, as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering is actually sharing in Christ. That's strange language. Paul uses this many times throughout the New Testament. We're going to look at a, an example of that in a moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That's not the only place he talks about sharing and suffering, filling up the afflictions of Christ, all of these things that incline him to say that I want to participate, I want to be a part of, I want to know, I want to experientially understand the pain that Jesus has walked through. I want to be a part of that. What does it mean to, to share in Christ's suffering? And quite frankly, as Peter writes to a group of people who are struggling, who are grappling emotionally with the world and they live in, where's the hope in suffering with Jesus? Here's the thing. I think for most of us in life, we're, we're, we're kind of wired or we've directed ourselves in this way that when we celebrate, when we rejoice with something, we likely do it with other people. And we're really comfortable at that. Like, we love having parties. We love celebrating. We've been through a season of, look, our high school seniors graduating, and there's just been parties upon parties, and I've seen pictures of all these families celebrating and honoring these students for all they've done. We're already into summertime, end-of-school parties, all these things. I've seen so many people lately that are taking part in the opportunity to rejoice. 
Some of them are school teachers. They have a different level of rejoicing that we will never know. But people are rejoicing. We do that together. It's really easy to do that together. You know what's not easy to do with other people? It's to suffer. You know what you and I do when we suffer? We isolate. We want to suffer alone. Some of it may be because we feel like it's like osmosis. Like we don't want our suffering to bleed off on anybody else. We don't want to burden anyone else. But I believe some of that suffering, and the reason that we would do it by ourselves, is truly an indication that we don't believe that anybody understands us, what we're walking through, and can actually meet us where we are. Because when you've lost that loved one, you know others who have lost a loved one, but it's not your loved one. When you've experienced job loss or a financial hardship, others have gone through that too, but it's not the same one that you're walking through. When the relationship ends, when the friendship is broken, when the trust is gone, sure, others have walked through something like that, but man, you don't know what it's like for me, what I feel right now. You know what Peter is saying in this moment? That there is blessing, there is hope, there is joy. These things sound wild to think, but when we suffer as a Christian, when we suffer for the name of Jesus, you, my friend, are suffering with the Lord himself. You are not alone. You're not alone. You don't suffer as one who suffers alone. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul describing this. He writes to the church at Corinth and he says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, look at this, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We don't suffer alone. Jesus has walked where we've walked. He's lost like you've lost. He's felt pain more than you and I can even imagine or fathom. And yet, the beauty of that sharing in that suffering is that we get all of Christ. We get all of his riches, all of his mercy, all of his grace. Think back to Romans 8 and these promises of God. If God's for us, who can be against us? If God has given us his son, he's given us his only son, what will he not give us? He will give us all comfort as we share in suffering with Christ. We don't suffer alone. For there's one who has suffered immeasurably more on our behalf in every way imaginable. So that we might have life in him. Third, suffering is blessing. Suffering is blessing. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You're blessed when you suffer. This is paradoxical. This is strange. This does not make sense in the modern world. You know those things like you would take on a test, like ACT maybe, uh, you know, kind of standard aptitude type test where it's like there, there's, there's the, that, line of, that line of questioning that's like, you know, apple is to red as orange is to... Well, that's a color, so that made it easy. Sorry. Apple is to red as banana is to... Right? Are we confident? Can we say this is yellow together? Okay, I saw a lot of faces, and I was really wondering for a second. Um, maybe you get them when they're not ripe. I don't know. Um, those two things don't seem to go together. Suffering and blessing. 
How are those things really connected? Well, Peter says, when you bear the name of Christ as one who walks around and identifies oneself as one who belongs to Jesus, you got to know at this point in history, the language that we use with one another now in a contemporary sense to say that we are Christians would not have been used in a positive way. In fact, it was a derogatory term. Those who were followers of Christ or little Christ were those who were mocked and who were scorned and had no place with those in the modern Greco-Roman world. But Peter says if you're insulted for the name of Christ, which means you're one who identifies with him in every way. you got to remember also at this time in the world, in antiquity, a name means everything. We don't, we don't live that way in the West as much anymore. You know that stuff you used to hear like my word is my bond, you know? Or, or, or you would get encouragement maybe when you were young. Maybe you can remember this uh, about the importance of your family name and honoring your parents and honoring those who bear your name. And to be called by the name of another is a big deal at this point in history. That might be hard for us to identify with, but you just need to know that to bear the name of Christ means that someone is choosing to identify with this one that looks like a fool to the world. Peter says that suffering is blessing. If you were insulted for his name, you are blessed. And then he tells you why. Why these believers are blessed. Why you and I are blessed. And it's because of this, it's because God's very spirit, the Holy Spirit of his glory, and so he's reminding them to look forward to the future, the hope of what's to come, and he tells them of the present and what's actually true in this moment. Despite any feeling one might have to the contrary, the very spirit of God rests upon these believers. Peter saying what Paul says is true. When you and I trust in Christ, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has come upon us. God is in you if you're a Christian. And thus you are in God. You are in Christ. And he is in you by his Spirit. So what in the world... Can that be viewed at, or viewed as rather, other than blessing? These are the very words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You know these words, this is Sermon on the Mount. And man, do you and I love the first half of these sayings, right? I love the first half. Listen to this. Blessed are you. I think it's hard. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Peter's being very clear when he's talking about what's happening here. That they're blessed, not just for suffering, but for suffering in this very particular way. What Jesus said, suffering on his account. And he tells believers how not to suffer? He says, don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. And all of those have very, very serious societal consequences. We know what happens legally from a judicial standpoint to those who are murderers. And those who are thieves. And those who are evildoers. But then he also throws in at the end this kind of wild thing. He says, also, don't suffer as a meddler. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anybody get any sort of sentence for meddling. Right? Why, do, why does Peter lump this in with these other three sins? He wants these believers to understand that there's a beautiful way, a proper way to suffer 
a way in which we get to experience blessing by trusting in Jesus and following him, giving up our life for his namesake, not suffering the way the world does. These people, he describes, are outsiders, those who are Gentiles, those who are pressing in and against these Christians at this day and age, and they're people who will do anything. They'll murder They'll steal, they'll do evil, they'll do harm to one another. And they'll meddle. They'll seek to find out what's going on in the life of somebody else. They'll seek to intervene. They'll seek to come with this agenda to try and figure out who someone is or what they're doing or what their motives are or what's going on with them. They're concerned more so with others than with themselves. And Peter says, believers are not to act this way. You know what the suffering is for the meddler? Eventually people realize they're being meddled with. And they don't want to retain a relationship with that person anymore. Because they realize that that person is more concerned with who they are than who that person really is and the things they should be focused on. Peter's saying, look, don't do any of these things. From the toughest, strangest, hardest thing to grapple with, the idea of killing another, all the way down to someone who is just a busybody and in other people's business. Across that entire spectrum. Don't suffer for doing those things because there's a suffering that comes with sin. He says instead, suffer for the name of Jesus and be blessed. Finally, suffer in view of God's sovereignty. Suffer in view of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 19. Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust their souls. What does that mean? What does it mean to entrust one's soul? It really means this, to suffer in view of the one who's actually in control. And that language that Peter uses here is remarkably unique. Because that word, entrust, has a connection to the very last words that Jesus would utter on the cross. This language of entrusting, this is Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. And you'll see in Luke's account what happens when Jesus is crucified. He says, it says, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This committing is entrusting. It's the same word. It comes from the very same place. Peter says this. He says, when you suffer, you don't suffer in such a way that, that life is out of control. In fact, this, the same God that we sang of earlier, when the chaos puts things in line, he is the one who controls all things. So therefore, we can suffer and when we do so, when we entrust our souls to the one who is faithful, and Peter's important, he uses that language creator because he's saying, look at what God has done throughout all of time and history. He is one who is faithful. He is one who is trustworthy. Therefore, you and I can entrust our souls to him. Because that's Christ-like. Because that's what Jesus entrusted himself fully, obediently to the Father. I want to read something to you as we draw to a close. and um, I want to welcome uh, our, our deacons are going to come and, and, and staff are going to come serve uh, communion this morning. We're going to have the chance to take part. I want to share with you something a gentleman named Howard Marshall said about suffering. It's really, really important. He says this, Part of the mystery of evil is that it cannot be wiped out, but only overcome by the suffering love of God incarnate in Christ. It would be wrong then to say that God's will for us is suffering for its own sake. 
So God's will is not for us to suffer for suffering's sake. And it's not because God delights in suffering. On the other hand, however, it is right to say that God's will for us is suffering because there is no other way that evil can be overcome. When we suffer, it is not a sign of God's lack of love or concern for us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. This morning, as you come to this table, you're going to get a picture of suffering. Do you remember the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross? And its first lines, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of what? Suffering and shame. On the other side of that cross, resurrection hope, that cross is transformed. It's not a place that we look to of shame anymore. It's a place of suffering indeed, but it is a place of glory. We glory in that cross. We boast in that cross. Our life has come from the atonement of our sins upon that cross. Now it's an emblem of suffering and glory. And this morning, we get the elements of suffering and glory. No better picture for you and I to, to see who Christ is and what he's done for us, then his body given for us and his blood shed for us for the very remission of our sins. So this morning, we come to a table and we get the opportunity, truly, to glory in suffering, to rejoice that pain that we experience now because we look toward a future that is full of hope because of what Jesus Christ has done. I want to tell you two things. I want to invite you to the table. If our, if our deacons uh, and staff would go ahead and come, um, here's what I want to share with you. I, I've grown up my whole life coming to this moment, uh, and, and, and I've been taught, I think, and encouraged in a helpful way that, that we should do so reverently. Absolutely. We should absolutely come to this table with deep reverence. But I also want to share with you what I truly believe that that looks like. That looks like revering Christ in your heart. It doesn't mean you, you walk up here with your head down and you're somber and you come to this table and you, and you think, I'm not worthy of this. Of course you're not. Me neither. But in the same way that Peter would urge others to not consider themselves as, as who others say they are, you and I don't get to say who we are. The cross speaks for us. Christ's body given speaks for us. The blood speaks for us. You come to this table not because you're qualified, but precisely for the opposite. You come to this table because you're in deep need of Jesus' grace and mercy. His life given for you, his blood poured out for you for the very remission of your sins. And that means you can come to this table in a celebratory manner. I don't know about you, but I'm not quiet when I eat dinner. I'm not. And I've had dinner with some of you, and you ain't either. Come to this table and recognize these elements of suffering, but do not do so in shame. Do it with glory. Rejoice in what Christ has done for you. God loved us so much that he gave his son. Jesus loved us, as John's gospel said to the end. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured suffering so that you and I might live. I don't know where you are this morning and what you're suffering or what you're walking through. Christ has suffered so that you might have life in him. If you have trusted in Jesus, come to this table and partake. His body given for you, his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do not know Jesus, this would be my hope for you this morning. That this morning, you instead of receiving these elements would receive Christ himself. That you would confess your sin, that you would repent of your sin, that you would turn and trust Jesus and find life in him, believing that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and Jesus who loves you will come again. These are Paul word, Paul's words to the church at Corinth. 
1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You and I have the opportunity to do that this morning. If you will stand, let's pray together and come to this table and taste and see that the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, we can confess that quite often we are surprised at suffering. Father, will you train us, will you teach our hearts not to be surprised, but to rejoice, to know that we share in suffering with your son Jesus, that we are blessed to bear the name of Jesus who loves us. And Father, that we can suffer in view of the fact that you are in control of all things. May we be mindful of this as we come to the table this morning to taste and see that truly you are good. We're thankful uh, to be able to celebrate communion with each of you uh, this morning. A couple other things uh, before we depart this morning. Again, I mentioned uh, earlier we're going to have our corporate prayer moment here at the end of the service, uh, but I got some things I really want to share with you this morning, uh, not just for myself, but on behalf of all of us here at Double Oak Community Church. Uh, it is wild to think, so it is, gosh, May the 28th, so this summer... In July, we will celebrate, and I know not everybody here has been here since the beginning, but we will celebrate five years this summer as a campus. That is wild to me. Um, I don't know, it, it feels like it was forever ago that there were those days when we were in Chelsea Park Elementary School on Sunday mornings. Does anybody remember these days? Days where we moved lunchroom tables and inevitably got like old gum or ketchup or something like stuck to us. Right? And, and, and we, we occupied classrooms, and we, we worshipped in a cafetorium, and we set all this stuff up, and we took it all down, and all that kind of stuff. Um, setting up and taking down signage. Neil did that constantly. Um, welcoming those from this community, and not just Chelsea Park, the neighborhood, but Chelsea as a whole, to come and to worship with us. And in the fall of 2020, we moved into this building and we began worshiping here. And it's been an incredible season of seeing people come to faith in Jesus. People that have been baptized. People that have joined the church as they found a home here. Depth of community. And I look around this place and I see relationships that God has formed by his grace. How people have connected with one another. We've taken part in service opportunities inside this place to care for, to serve one another. And we've also experienced missional opportunities outside these four walls. We've encouraged one another. We've laughed with one another. We've cried with one another. There's been true Romans 12 rejoicing and weeping in various seasons as we've experienced what it's like to be a local part of the body of Christ. Amazing things. But to be very clear over the past several months, there have been some really challenging moments for our church. I think a number of you have, have seen it, a number of you have recognized it, and some of you have perhaps even felt it. In the past few weeks, I've had a number of people kind of approach me or come to me and say, hey, you know, something doesn't feel right. Something is going on. I can't put my finger on it, but something's not okay. And those questions and feelings and intuitions are actually correct. Something isn't right, and it hasn't been right, but more than something in the singular sense, it's actually some things in the plural sense. I'd love to stand here before you and give you a singular answer, because that's what we all want in life, right? When there's a problem, when there's a challenge, when there's a point of pain, we just want to drive down to the one simple thing that's behind it, that magic bullet, the one thing that's been wrong. And unfortunately, such a thing does not exist. Like most challenges relationally, there's not one singular issue that exists. Instead, there have been a number of challenges that have faced our elders, that being myself, Joe Harvey, Richard Self and Ben DeLoach here at the Chelsea campus. In January, 
uh, there was such challenge uh, that the Mount Laurel elders, uh, Adam Robinson, our senior pastor, Mike Mantooth, who's here this morning, uh, chair of the elder board, Dave Watson, who's also here, our executive pastor at Mount Laurel, Tony Bell, Rob Zelosi, Brian Cornelius, our church administrator, they all came alongside us to help us really heal some divisions and address the challenges that we face. And with the help of the Mount Laurel elders, a plan was created to allow us to walk together and to move forward as a church. And although that plan was initially agreed to by each of the elders, both Mount Laurel and Chelsea, our current lay elders, Joe Harvey, Richard Self, and Ben Deloach, have expressed their unwillingness to support this plan and the leadership of this campus. And consequently, this week, they each submitted their resignation from our elder board effective immediately. Each of these men have their own reasons for making this decision, but each has also decided that they cannot move forward any further with the current leadership at Chelsea. Like you... I've been deeply impacted and will be forever grateful for the ministry of this men, or of these men, rather. From the inception of the campus in the elementary school in the very beginning, five years ago, till today. And here's the thing, I know this comes as a shock to many of us. I'm, in fact, still processing it myself. And I'll tell you personally... I can express, um, this has been a really challenging season for me, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and look, the, the truth is, I'm still learning as a senior leader. I haven't done everything perfectly, by no means. However, during this season, I am fully convinced of my calling to pastor and shepherd this campus both now and into the next season of this church. In the midst of all this turmoil, this frustration, this disappointment, these challenges, the Lord has done amazing things here at Double Oak Chelsea. Think about this. Just since January, nine baptisms, 13 different families have joined. The Bowers are joining at 1045 this morning. Um, 33 people total, thriving community groups off campus and on campus. Opportunities for service here where people are getting truly connected to use their giftings in the Lord. Missional opportunities outside the church. And here's the thing. You might say, well, well, what changes? Well, with the help of the Mount Laurel campus, we're still walking toward independence with their blessing and their support, both spiritually and financially. And in the coming weeks, we're going to nominate new elders and continue to pursue the calling that God has given us. He's given us a calling to grow in maturity, community, and charity. And here's what it looks like to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live in the community the gospel has created, and to live out the gospel by putting the love of Jesus on display for everyone that we encounter. What does that mean? That we're going to continually seek to become gospel people. And in order to do that, we need each other. This church needs you. Look around this room. Like, really, turn your head. Look around. Your brothers and sisters that are here, this is, you're not experiencing this in a vacuum. The people that are here with you, they need you. I, I want to be perfectly clear and utterly transparent. I need you. I need you. And I'll need your help as we choose new elders and we add even more leaders to move forward. And look, I know this announcement's timing is, is not crazy helpful, right? It's Memorial Day weekend. We've got a ton of brothers and sisters and friends that are traveling. Um, but it's important to share this with you with immediacy because we want to be as transparent as possible. So here's what's going to happen next. Next Sunday evening on June the 4th, here in this room at 6 p.m., we're going to host a time of questions and answers, and it's really going to be centered on the future of who we are as a church and where we're going. And I would urge each, each of you to attend if possible. And look, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not through processing it and in many ways. And some of you may just be beginning to process grief over something like this. Um, but I want to tell you, as I process this grief, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 18 through 21. This is what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You might say, well, what does that have to do with right now? Well, here's the thing. This is a season of grieving. It is a season of pain. This is loss. Like me, you're going to wrestle with the, the frustration, the disappointment, the sadness of missing brothers and sisters who are no longer with us. And in many ways, this is a death. And that is painful, but it should not be shocking. Because after all, the Christian life is a series of death and resurrections. So we say thanks be to God to Jesus Christ who makes all things new because it's in his resurrection that he gives us hope. And even though we experience grief, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the very power that raised Christ from the dead, just as Paul talks in Ephesians, this power that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, that same power is in us, the Holy Spirit. And as this passage says, it is for us who believe. For you who believe in Jesus, his incomparably great power exists in you and will give you hope and encouragement, will comfort us now and forevermore. I know many of you will have questions, and, that, and that's natural. Uh, and, and I want you to know that, that specifically even today, you can come and find myself. You can find, find Mike Mantooth here, Dave Watson. And there are plenty of others uh, who you can talk with if you have concerns. We want, we want to hear you. We love you. We care about you. We are excited about the things that the Lord is doing in this church. And we'll continue to press on with that. If you will, please stand. Uh, as there's a benediction uh, and we depart this place today, um, I want to take this moment to do two things. I just want us to briefly and, and, and genuinely pray for our church. Just take a moment to bow our heads all together and to, to pray silently for this church, for myself, for our staff, for our elders, for those who serve in community groups, for those who are, who are teaching children and, and students and preschoolers in this moment, for people who serve missionally and in every possible way. Can we pray for this church that we would be a place of unity and of healing? So let's start with that. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I don't believe it's any coincidence that we find ourselves surprised by pain. And thinking through and wrestling with uh, the pain of change, of challenge, of hardship. Father, would you cause Double Oak Chelsea, by the very power of your spirit, to be a place in which we love one another. And we are unified around the mission of the church to grow in our faith, to experience one another, and to love others as you have loved us so that people would come to saving knowledge of you. God, would you give us unity? Would you give us hope? In Jesus' name, amen. As you depart this morning, there are going to be offering baskets at the back of each door. Every time that we celebrate communion here at Double Oak Community Church, we take an opportunity to, to collect a benevolence offering. If any monies you feel led to give, those go straight to needs of people here in this community. Now, as we depart, uh, and it might feel strange or hard or, or weird to just lift your hands like normal, but I encourage you to do this. Nothing magical, nothing spooky, nothing weird, but just a posture of who we are as believers. We are people who receive, receive this blessing. Blessed are you who suffer for the name of Jesus. Though you may be reviled, persecuted, look different from this world, you share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the world. Take heart. May we all go in peace.